This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 71. Today we discuss the relationship between philosophy and theology. This episode is brought to you by the Confessional Presbyterian, a journal for discussion of Presbyterian doctrine and practice, online at cpjournal.com. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. To read more about how you can help, please visit reformedforum.org support. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation in Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today James Dalzell, who's a Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary, studying in systematics, focusing on the simplicity of God. Good morning, James. Great to have you over. Thanks, Camden. Good to be here. I also have a regular who's back after a couple episodes off, Jeff Waddington, who's teacher of the congregation in Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how you doing, Camden? Excellent. <laughs> Today we're going to have uh, more of an informal discussion about theology proper, discussing issues and problems in that field, uh, as well as books and and thinkers and relationship between philosophy and theology, all sorts of things. We don't know exactly where it's headed, but we're going to start talking and we'll get somewhere. I was just going to say, Camden, that at the end of the program, our listeners may think that the issues are that are things that, that I have or that James has, <laughs> that we have issues. We, we do well, have I, issues. I, I, think, I think that'll be pretty evident. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you can be fundamentally certain about that. Um, well, where do we want to start? Let's start with the relationship of philosophy to theology. Uh, if you read Colossians, you see that we're not supposed to be swept away uh, by worldly philosophies, etc. And that has often uh, been cause for many to stay away from the philosophical disciplines, uh, to eschew that type of thinking, and to essentially be willfully ignorant about philosophical questions. Uh, others take a different approach and basically interpret their Bible according to their philosophical system, not taking or deriving the answer, uh, the answers to philosophical questions from Scripture first and foremost, but I, basically making their reason their own precimpium. So I wanted to ask you as we get going, what is the proper relationship? Well, I would, I would throw a third category in there. Hmm. Um, and the third category... Uh, is the person who doesn't have a position at all mm. um, on that, and I and I'm not being critical in, in raising not willfully that. ignorant, but truly no, ignorant. Yeah, and and not and not truly and not culpable ignorance either. Sure. In the sense of, um, well, put it this way, I, I just think back when I was when I was first converted and began studying the Scripture, uh, the thing the thing that concerned me most. Uh, was to understand the doctrine of Scripture itself and in, in kind of its simplicity uh, as it comes with reading the Word and knowing the Word um, as it is. And that's not to say I had no need of interpreters or of pastors. I needed, I needed men to instruct me. But in terms of the level at which I was going to engage the doctrine in Scripture and the language that I would use to engage it was at that point not, not informed philosophically. And I'm not maybe as we discuss these things as pastors and aspiring pastors kind of being conscientious that not everyone interested in reformed theology is going to feel like they have either the time or yeah. the intellectual resources to pursue to Certainly. pursue things Certainly. philosophically um and yeah i guess what we want to say probably this morning is is that that's um that that's not a reason to 
to develop uh, a kind of hostility or maybe even a a false piety that says, well, I I take kind of this way. I I take my theology black, you know, straight from the Bible, and you take yours with cream and lots of theology dumped in. Um, you know, and there's almost, we can kind of pride ourselves on taking our theology black, um, and yet I think at the same time the in, we want to affirm the intuition. The intuition is correct that we we derive our doctrine from the Scripture itself, and yet we're wanting with that to affirm that even Scripture gives us precedent to expound and articulate its doctrines, um, maybe in words that we don't find there. Yeah, and one um, thing that. Greg Bonson in his little series, it's not little, big series on the history of Western philosophy. The first thing he starts three, out three with. Three semesters worth yeah, of Western it's huge. Yeah, You can get that courses, from right? three, Covenant Media Foundation. Um, it's very affordable for what you get. I think you can get an MP3 set uh, for maybe $150, maybe even less. But for uh, three semesters of college-level yeah, lecture. Pretty, from and a from a Bantillian perspective. Bantillian reform perspective. That's the only good. place you can find that. Very You're not going to get philosophical too. instruction with that from that vantage point he, he has a very good way of handling this topic, yeah. doesn't he? I mean, yeah, and he starts off speaking about philosophy. And, and we need to make clear that philosophy isn't just some ivory tower discipline. Everyone has a philosophy. Uh, whether they they know it or not, it's a way of answering big questions, and and everyone has fundamental presuppositions and a fundamental way of approaching their world, whether that's conscious or not. That we have a philosophy uh, in our mind of of of, uh, of how we answer these types of questions. Now, in that sense, philosophy is almost being used as a synonym for worldview, right? Right. Uh, and again, uh, Bonson's, I think it's his first lecture where he, he actually points out that, that uh, uh, Christian theology uh, could be seen as a, as a kind of philosophy, mm-hmm. depending on how you define it. Certainly. Right? And we can get into that in a few moments. But what I want, was wanting to say that historically, uh, there are basically three perspectives on the relationship of philosophy to theology or philosophy to the Bible. You've got, on the one hand, uh, some of the early church fathers. I'm thinking especially of Justin Martyr. I'm thinking uh, who was an apologist in the second century. Big into Greek philosophy. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the Alexandrian school uh, mm. of, of uh, doing biblical interpretation. And we think of Clement and Origen. And these folks saw philosophy as uh, almost all-embracing. Uh, we would argue, I think, all three of us would agree that they allowed philosophy, Greek philosophy especially, to run roughshod to a certain extent over their theology and, and their exegesis. Then there's the other extreme. Uh, what would be well, what would be an example of that? An example of um, well, just the doctrine of the Trinity is impacted. His Christology is impacted by yeah, Greek philosophy. J- Justin Martyr's notion of of uh, the incarnation of of Christ is uh, attached, appears to be connected to a notion of the chain of being, which, as you know, is a problem not just for him, but for many folk. So that what you have in the Son of God in the incarnation, you have uh, not a God-man, but you seem to, well, uh, he affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, but the way he understands it, it looks like uh, the uh, the Logos is uh, something less than fully divine. 
Right. Uh, so that's why you people will refer to Justin Martyr's understanding of the uh, incarnation as a logos Christology. So that in Greek philosophy, there's a chain of being yes. of of which God and is at the very top. top. Um, Dirt is he's at the, the bottom. He's the maximal instance yes. of, Lawyers. of existence. Lawyers are at the that's very what, bottom. That's what Dr. Oliphant says. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the logos is somewhere in the middle of the top. Yeah. So near the top, so we joke. would de- define it as subordinationist, right? So you, which got, is rejected by orthodoxy, right? It's, yeah, we uh, would safely say that that's yeah. rejected by orthodoxy. So that's that's the side that may be <laughs> more uh, allowing for philosophy to rule or control theology mm-hmm. and exegesis. Then you have the other extreme, which is Tertullian. Uh, and Tertullian says, you know, what does, uh, the, uh, um, what does the academy have to do, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens, the academy with Solomon's porch? And, of course, uh, so he's taken to be someone who rejects philosophy totally outright. There's no interaction or influence of philosophy in in theology or mm. exegesis of the Bible. Hence the now, Van Tilfest Schrift, where it gets its title. Yes, that's correct. Now, the, the only problem with that is that his argument looks like it has roots in Stoicism. So mm. it doesn't de- deal with that as you will. So is it Tertullian, then, who sets up the dichotomy between Hebraic approaches to the Scripture and Hellenized approaches to the Scripture. Uh, you know how you have that yes, accusation yes. now. I mean, um, a lot of people will look at scholasticism question. and say that's that's just uh, Hellenized Christianity. I don't know that that specific way of putting it could be traced back to him, although he might be sympathetic to it. But does uh, does pitting Jerusalem against Athens as this kind of absolute either or? Yeah, he has no use uh, for what we would call secular wisdom. Which is what philosophy, and we need we do need at some point to define philosophy so as we can distinguish it from exegesis and theology. All right, so maybe after you minute. tell us our third, the uh, third option, <laughs> the third. Oh, so you've got uh, an exam, the Alexandrian church fathers, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, Clement, Origen, as examples of those who who allow philosophy to rule their theologizing. Then you have, apparently, on the other side, and of course, they're the Greek. They're the Eastern fathers. Then you've got the Western father, like Tertullian, who, who wants noth- apparently wants nothing to do with philosophy. Then you have a third category, uh, exemplified probably by Augustine. And he wants to, to see philosophy as the handmaiden, or the ankylai, okay, the ankylai, the handmaiden of theology. So that philosophy um, is used to bring clarity to conceptions and communication. Uh, in other words, it assists with the ability to think clearly uh, in in the exercise of exegesis in theologizing. How? Let me ask. Let me throw a question in on that note. How does how does that approach of Augustine, especially as he's sometimes charged with imbibing Neoplatonism, the Plotinus uh, tradition, h- how does Augustine's position not undermine the perspicuity of Scripture? Meaning, if if we affirm the perspicuity of Scripture uh, as as clear and intelligible, then why do we need? Um, Another discipline. A, a non-inspired device, well, as it were, right. to bring clarity. I, I, my my initial response, and, and again, we're, you know, we're uh, 
because I haven't given a lot of thought to it, would be that the clarity of Scripture is not saying that everything in Scripture is clear equally. Okay, what it's saying is that the message of salvation, the central message, is clear. You even go to the Westminster Confession, you'll see right. in chapter 1, not right, there's, plane, dis- there's discussion two. about that. Uh, and so they would say, the, the, the assembly would say that to, through the due use of ordinary means, you can come to an understanding of the, of the scriptures. Uh, in addition to under- the, the, the central message of salvation is absolutely clear. But there are parts of Scripture which are less clear, other parts that are more clear. And then that's where you get into the doctrine of the analogy of Scripture, where you allow the clearer sections to help you understand the less clear. Now, so uh, I don't see that uh, looking to... Now, you, the, the problem with looking to Augustine, of course, is he develops. He, he himself uh, has a, probably looks closer to the... Uh, the Alexandrian approach early in his Christian walk. And as he matures and grows in the Christian faith, that full Neoplatonic influence uh, begins seems to fall to recede away. Mm-hmm. into the background, right? Now, uh, Van Til describes uh, that, that phenomenon in Augustine. Uh, he compares it to two uh, Siamese twins. Uh, there were two Siamese twins who were well known in the early part of the 20th century he makes reference to them and he says Christianity and Neoplatonic philosophy in Augustine are equal at one point and then after uh, over a period of time one of the twins has to die so that the other one would would live Uh, and that's how he it's in Christianity and Conflict where he uses that kind of analogy Mm -hmm. so that he sees Augustine so it depends on what you're reading where in Augustine's career uh, you're reading like his discussions of freedom of the will are early on and you clearly see a stronger philosophical influence that's not tempered by biblical influence it's interesting that both both the, the medievals who followed Augustine and then the reformers after that all looked to Augustine as a source of inspiration on how they would approach uh, life and doctrine. Yes. Um, and yet, and yet uh, the reformers can be critical of certain aspects of are. the medieval right. age for being overly speculative. So, so uh, are, we, are we blaming Augustine for over-speculation in the Middle Ages uh, and yet also crediting him with a return to biblical Christianity in well, the Reformation? Well, here's or? the thing. Of course, after Augustine, you, you have uh, major theologians who would, might see themselves in the line of Augustine but who aren't necessarily, don't, do not appear to be in agreement with him, practically speaking. What I mean by that is they may think that they are in agreement with him when in fact they are not, and I point to Thomas Aquinas as the example who appears to Thomas appears to allow for uh, philosophy see uh, it's uh, Augustine is understood to have to, to suggest that philosophy exists not in its own right but to be the handmaiden to theology and Thomas is often understood and again I'm not an expert in this area but what I've read seemed to suggest that Thomas uh allowed for the freestanding existence of philosophy. Yes. Uh, it had to have its own integrity. As a science. Uh, as a science. Right. Right. And so so that uh, there's a tendency 
in Thomas to allow greater influence with regard to philosophy and in particular, of course, Aristotle, the philosopher. Uh, is is for Thomas? But you'd know more about that. I guess I'm at, I no. I guess I'm asking all the questions. But I guess I guess for him, we're wanting to say that the the discipline of philosophy is is self-contained as as a true and genuine science. Um, it's not entirely clear what theology, at least from where I stand, it may be clear in the minds of many other people, exactly what theology is for him. Is theology, for, for Thomas, the doctrine of God can be a science because the doctrine of God can be approached uh, philosophically in, right. the, in the preambula fide, right? The preambles to faith. As Reformed, we reject such a thing as the preambles to faith. That is to say, a kind of you philosophical can, knowledge see, of God. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't use our favorite buzzwords, uh, nature-grace distinction, but you could almost see philosophy is nature, theology is grace, and it's on top of, of nature. Well, that, that may or may not be a fair uh, reading of Thomas, but that's I think typical. It's fa- it would probably reading. need some clarification, but I think it's fair. Uh, part of the, the, the nature-grace problem is that, that grace, grace doesn't do a whole lot uh, of—grace doesn't add much— to Thomas, what adds a lot to Thomas is being existence, and as much as philosophy deals with being, it is inherently directed towards something good, because being as being is good is better than non-being is better than non-being, and it is participative yes. in the being in of the God. Being of Anything God. that is is by virtue of participation in God, and as much as it is the concern, especially of metaphysics. To consider being as such, it is considering something good, participative in God. So you can have, you can say a lot of theological things before you ever, before you ever enter the science of theology, or is theology even a science? And theology seems to, theology seems to be a science because philosophy is a science and lets well, you let, say let's, theological uh, things. Let's, uh, let's go back and unpack some of these things, okay? Because uh, my goodness, uh, we're not going to get it all. Are you going to define philosophy yeah, for us? Well, let's, well, let's, let's, let's do a couple things Am I first. going to define philosophy? Well, the, first, uh, the most simple definition can, we can, can be done lexically, I suppose. Love of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, philo, phileo and phileo, uh, Sophia. Sophia. Love, the love of, of wisdom. wisdom. So shouldn't Christians uh, yes, that's why seek philosophy? Someone like uh, Bonson will, say, will not allow for Christians to eschew philosophy. It right, but that doesn't mean everyone has to be way. an academic. No, oh no, no, no. Uh, right. Of course not. We just to clarify with Dr. Bonson's position, but um, but yeah. it means that we can't assume a kind, of, think, a kind of higher. I, I happen to think that everybody should be an academic philosopher. Okay? <laughs> just just to make things clear, okay. That's why you've always intimidated me. <laughs> you, I intimidate you, brother. Oh, for sure. Well, it works both ways. <laughs> Man, that. alive. <laughs> this guy is brilliant. You know that, right? <laughs> So, um, so it's lo- so it's love of wisdom. Um, I mean, that's that's a very basic etymological uh, definition of what of philosophy. Now, <laughs> of course, you I know, think a lot. Some of our listeners might better. think that what, what often better. passes as philosophy doesn't sound much like wisdom. To no, them. right? That's the problem. <laughs> but that that's basic. That's the basis of the of of the 
uh, of the science of discipline, uh, science of uh, philosophy. Now, let's maybe it would be helpful. We've got a, a several definitions we've got to make here, okay? <laughs> because we've brought up issues that need clarification. One is the definition of philosophy. What is the definition of theology? And what is the definition of a science? Okay, so let's let's deal with those three things before we move any further, because to talk about their relationship implies that we know some, what they are. Okay, so we're going to go back to the scholastic method and ask, uh, what is it? Quid sit? Is that right? The Latin quid sit? What is it? Somebody else out there See, might be able to correct me. that's why I defer to you. Me. Okay, what is it? Okay, philosophy is the uh, search for wisdom or the search for truth. Now, uh, we as Christians would say that tends to be done by non-believers without any reference to the existence of God or any communication by him. It's a purely naturalistic endeavor. Now, that's not to say that the various philosophers in the past who weren't Christian didn't believe in the existence of some sort of God. Many of them did. However, their understanding of who God is and whether he has communicated with us, it would be uh, woefully what, deficient. Deficient because suppressed. Because suppressed. Because And, and this is where we get into the... the okay, one of the, after we deal with the definitions of philosophy, theology, and science, we need to get into a discussion of what is the relationship of philosophy to general or natural revelation. Yes. Okay. okay, so let's... Uh, philosophy is a love of wisdom, searching after the truth... Okay, it is uh, generally not done with reference to the Bible, special revelation. Okay, so secular philosophy is not done with reference to Scripture, and that's understandable. You know, not a not. Uh, well, we don't surprising. do Islamic philosophy. Right. You know, right? So. Uh, okay, so theology. Okay, theology is the. St- is the study of God and the things of God or the science of living blessedly to God, depending on whose definition. That sounds very Amesian. Yes, it is, isn't it? That's uh, great. William from, the, Ames, from the marrow of theology. Yes, uh, William Ames, the great uh, Puritan theologian. Uh, and what is, okay, so theology is uh, the... Discipline of studying God and the things of God. Now, from a, a Protestant, a reform, Reformed, or Reformation perspective, that would be uh, directly dependent upon God's Word to us in the Bible, special revelation. Of course, they will interact with general revelation as well. Yeah. So what... Okay, so we're giving on-the-fly definitions here. Science. What is scientia? That's the Latin word that is the Gosh. root knowledge that's right however in our day science is often reduced to natural science or what used to be called natural philosophy physics physics and mathematics some, sometimes i was going to say sometimes mathematics i mean for the thomists you have the degrees of knowledge where you move from the first thing you know is physics and then from there you advance to mathematics and then from there to metaphysics the things studied after physics right. and then from there in the Christian experience to mysticism, mm, the, which yes. for them is the visio dei. The, the vision of God. But 
but science to and all of those were sci- all of those up to metaphysics at least were I don't know about science. were considered sciences whereas today it's usually the first two right. degrees and everything else the is included. but, some, but yeah. even more specifically mathematics might not be included in the sciences and typically some people might limit sciences to the study of natural phenomena through empirical mathematics it can right. get you reduced to the handmaiden of physics yeah in a, so, in a way but see that they're they're historically you know and and, and I'm not necess- not into big big into word studies but as a matter of fact science as knowledge has never been limited to the natural ex you know exploration of this world mm-hmm. that that is a understanding of science that I would fight tooth and nail because it's reductionistic because it's reductionistic uh and of course generally speaking those who want to argue that are wanting to to make theology into nothing more than I like vanilla and you like chocolate. In other words, value judgments. Okay. You mean that it's not a, a real body of, of knowledge, knowledge of things as they really yes, are to be correct. sought and known and understood. Right. So they would be denying what we would want to uphold, which is some form of realism. See, now we're getting into another topic. But, uh, yes, we'll so stay you away got, from that. Science is merely, science uh, as a, a traditionally understood was merely a body of knowledge okay, now that what, is organized what? and passed on, disseminated. Okay, How and, do we differentiate uh, the sciences then? You mean in terms of mathematics, physics? Mm-hmm. Uh, would be the yeah. object of their particular study. Yeah, the, it? it's what you're studying that will determine the method you use to study it. That's pretty standard. I'm not sure if that's what you were... Or the subject matter. The the subject, well, you've got uh, biology, which is study of life, zoology, which is the study of animal life, uh, you know, non-human life, theology, the study of God, uh, philology, the study of language. Numerology. Or, <laughs> numerology. <laughs> Astrology. No, 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 no. Astronomy. Uh, so... Okay, so the quest, the following follow-up question to what is a science? So I would argue uh, that theology is a science. Now, the next question that follows is after that one: Very is, old is Princetonian theology of you. practical or theoretical? Is I, it a practical I, I, science or a theoretical science? Do you think that I'm just kind of going back to Thomas on on your definition of science? Do you think that Thomas would say that um, that Theology, as such, revealed theology is is a science, in as much as his his conception of a science no, has to I do with demonstrability. He would not, because the sciences are limited to what humans uh, knowledge that is acquired. Right. Is that right. So, and, and theology, by definition, is based upon revelation. So, therefore, it cannot be a science. But I'm I'm thinking Any th- it, it differentiates between faith and knowledge for Aquinas. For yes. Aquinas, knowledge can go knowledge can go to the third degree of uh, of knowledge, which which is uh, metaphysics. metaphysics. And that's why a lot of Thomas's discussion of God and his attributes and his actions are carried on uh, in relative isolation from his doctrine of the Trinity, incarnation. Right other fundamental aspects of Christian theology. And he will even at times go as far as to say that theology is not known, it's believed, because if it were known, uh, it would be comprehended. It would be comprehended right. uh, in a certain sense. And it would be, it would be a demonstrable science uh, uh, 
able to be demonstrated by the, the See, laws of logic. Right. See, I, I, I would not find that discussion acceptable. There are elements. I'm in just there I'm that, just saying that right. to highlight that the reform right. the reformer going to take a different approach. Right. He remember Thomas also starts out that all knowledge is based in in uh, experience. Right. He, he's a so, sensibles sensibles. Right? Yeah. Right. So he he um, there are problems with Thomas. Uh, and again, uh, we don't want to be. I don't think any of us here wants to be sounding as if we're 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 dismissing Thomas with a wave of the hand. He was a brilliant man and a, I believe a Christian. So my my disagreements with him are not. They need to be specific. And in this instance, I'm having trouble with the faith knowledge distinction that he makes. I I agree with you. Among other things, I'm yeah. also having trouble with his uh, knowledge is based in sensibles. Mm-hmm. Because I, I believe in my I personally believe in something like innate ideas. Yeah, innate and, and, also and innate ideas is, is anathema to the Thomist right. uh, so, approach. Uh, so I, I I believe that the knowledge of God that's implanted in us is something like, although not necessarily exactly like like uh, innate ideas. Absolutely true knowledge with content that is not obtained through empirical methods, right? For Thomas? No, that's what you're. That's what the reform. That's what the reform would hold to. Okay, let's untangle this for a minute uh, and go back. Well, okay. when you when you say sensibles, we mean that, that means have to it, be. What we sensed. would call experience. Okay. Experience. So Empiricism. we might even say empirical. Empiricism. Yes, we want to hold as reformed folk uh, that God has. There is a sensus divinitatis. There is right. a well, knowledge we, of God that has real content yes. that is not obtained. Through an empirical process, right, and that's through what, the senses, right. right. You got to there, there's a sense in which, um, if you're dealing with Thomas directly and not through all the, the the myriads of interpreters, which is a nearly impossible thing to do, I suppose, unless you isolate yourself. It's kind of like how theology. Aristotle was to Thomas. You yeah, couldn't it, understand Aristotle except through a myriad of interpreters. He did. Thomas, <laughs> of course, comes to Aristotle through interaction with uh, Muslim philosophers. Avicenna. Yeah, Avicenna, Avicenna, Ibn Sina, mm-hmm. and Averroes, Ibn Rushd. So, if you're going to use the the Islamic names, right? Uh, but we're we're coming a little a yes, few, far are. afield here. So back so. back to the issue of okay, is theology okay? I would affirm that theology is a science, so because it's a body of knowledge. Now, that's, that's not the only thing we can say, but getting back to the relationship of philosophy to theology. Philosophy is a science because it's a body of knowledge that can that can be organized and disseminated. Now, the, the question is, what kind of the next question that would often arise? And there were debates about this even within reformed, uh, you know, post-Reformation reform circles. Is it a theoretical science or is it a practical science? Mm-hmm. Or is my it answer is it both? Yeah, yeah, both. it certainly can be both. Well, you have some who would argue that it's a purely theoretical uh, science. Do you it's know right. any of the? Uh, post-reform or the reformers who would have gone that route? Well, even James? practical. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of Turretin obviously affirms it as a mixed. Right. As a, so the theology is mixed. Yeah, don't assume that because someone is intellectual that they're going to go the purely theoretical route. Right. The, the concern that a lot of the post-reformation uh, theologians had with thinking of theology as, as uh, primarily or exclusively practical is that that was the position of Socinianism. Right. Uh, that was the position of all the major heresies uh, and Spinoza and yeah. 
and all of their all of their uh, all of their enemies theologically held to the held to theology as purely practical, which means theology is nothing more uh, than something to be done, something to be uh, a transformation, something to be transformed to. Whereas to say that it's theoretical is to say that theology uh, is is something to be sought for the knowledge of the thing. Uh, that it, that there is a ble- that that blessedness or or beatitude is not merely in in the conforming transformative side of Christianity, but that there is real beatitude, real blessing in, in the in the apprehension of truth of truth and God. of God Himself. Right. Right. It's doxological. It should be. It, it is well, doxological. Let's, let's give you and it's modern, doxological beyond ex- change, beyond give the question you a, of change. A more contemporary illustration of this: uh, B.B. Warfield. Of course, defends the, the uh, rigorous academic study by theologians and theological students. He, he's approached, and he, someone says, "Well, wouldn't you rather spend ten hours in prayer than spend <laughs> ten hours in your books?" To yeah. which he responds, "I would rather spend ten hours in my books praying." <laughs> or base, and this was also the would be also be the viewpoint of someone like Jonathan Edwards, who who looked upon his studies as a form of worship. So there's a sense in which the mindset or the heart frame, if you will, of the person doing theology that, that uh, enters in as well. But So I would argue that theology is both a practical and a theoretical science. In other words, it's, it yields, it's theoretical, but it yields living blessedly to God. Mm-hmm. So in contemporary knowledge, uh, it's wholly taken up with the heart and the head. Uh, it's not something where you can where, where these things uh, have nothing to do with each other. No, but they should be conducted in that yeah. vein. Before we continue, let me mention this episode is brought to you by the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. Uh, it's now in its fifth year, and we've been mentioning it for several episodes. It's uh, being the Confessional Presbyterian. Obviously, there's uh, some focus on the production of the Westminster Assembly, which produced the confessional standards that have been generally that have been held, generally speaking, by Presbyterian communions for the last 350 years, and even appreciated by our uh, confessional Baptist folk friends, such, well, to, look, such look as at, the man to my right. Now look at the 1677. <laughs> That's right. Well, the journal uh, has uh, published articles. Even I understand that the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary doctrinal statement that the faculty sign on to is a revision of the Westminster oh. Confession, or at least that's how I understood huh. the uh, remarks that Dr. Moeller made at, at the 2003 Sovereign Grace Conference. Interesting. The journal has uh, published articles dealing with specific doctrines of the Westminster Standards, such as liberty of conscience, justification by faith, eschatology, as well as the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ, something that's a very interesting study in the Westminster Standards. Of course, it's also published historical studies dealing with the traditional form of the standards as they have come down in various printed versions over the centuries, even including critical studies of the textual errors that have crept in. So kind of like text text, criticism criticism of the standards. On the standards. So of particular note, I want to mention that the journal has an ongoing series presenting a corrected text of the lengthy Larger Catechism, a study which traces errors in the text and scripture proofs from the earliest editions of, all the way to modern denominational printing. So that's something you can find in the journal. Uh, James, have you ever had a chance to look? Yeah, I have looked at the journal. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really great publication. It's beautifully produced, yes. mm-hmm. um, and I've noticed that a lot of 
a lot of significant libraries, uh, including Princeton's, uh, mm-hmm. beside Westminster's and others, uh, subscribe to the journal. So, I mean, it's getting it's getting uh, good circulation in academic circles as well. And it's not, yeah, as we mentioned, it is the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. It's not simply for Confessional Presbyterians. James is a Confessional Reformed Baptist, and there's still an awful lot of material in there that's going to be of interest oh, yeah. to the still, academics, still lay people alike. The debate on Pato communion gets a little lost on some of us, <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. It's a, it's a substantial journal. Uh, yeah, and for $18, articles. it comes out once a year, but for $18, you can subscribe and get the editions, and it's not. It's it is large. It's yeah, not a, it's, it's not a it's not a flimsy tome. I mean, no. it comes at what sometimes three hundred pages, pages or three, more, and it's page. large format. It's not. Right. It's much larger. It's an oversized. It looks like an oversized yeah, book. Regular really. magazine, right? Regular yeah. regular magazine size, size, except three hundred pages. Of dimension, but it's thick. Yeah, three hundred and some pages. Off and uh, excellent, uh, excellently produced, laid out nicely, and you can get those uh, by visiting cpjournal.com and you can subscribe there. So we want to thank them for their support of Christ the Center. So now we've been speaking about uh, roughly the relationship of philosophy to theology. We've established that in a certain sense, theology is a science. uh, And philosophy would also be a science. Okay. And so we wanted to talk, what was it that I said? Oh, the relationship of philosophy to natural revelation. Yes, that's what we wanted to get to. How do we do philosophy, uh, understanding that principally we need to be deriving our authority uh, and our guidelines from Scripture as as the ultimate authority for faith and life, but also that God has truly revealed himself through nature, through general revelation. How do we go about formulating a philosophy that is faithful to the text, all the while incorporating and not cutting half of God's revelation off, so to speak? And maybe in addition to that, how how do we how do we go about doing it uh, in light of the fact that some of the some of the concepts and ideas that we want to use to articulate uh, the biblical faith and doctrine are words and ideas that are developed in a pagan context. Right. Uh, I think of the first time reading through Calvin's Institutes, um, and you you turn the page and there's a lengthy quote from Cicero. Right. Uh, with <laughs> with much appreciation, obviously by Calvin. Is that on um, the nature of gods? It may have been. He does, but all Cicero gets quoted uh, often through the Institutes, and it raises the question of how of how someone uh, pagan in their outlook can offer anything uh, to the Christian in his articulation of biblical. That's a good question. That that leads into a discussion of the relationship of philosophy to uh, natural revelation or general revelation. Now. Uh, philosophy in our day especially is often, even by Christian philosophers, uh, is often done with purposeful neglect of the scriptures. In fact, uh, if you're a Vantillian and you attempt to do philosophical writing or, or present philosophical papers at a learned society meeting, you will find very quickly that uh, you will be criticized if you make any reference to special revelation, because special revelation is, by definition, theology, not philosophy. Now, as Vantillians, we reject that distinction, which makes us an odd, odd birds, I guess, uh, because we're not willing to allow philosophy to be done as Christians without uh, subordinating that philosophy to God's word. 
I might throw in there, I think, I think that unwittingly, sometimes we find this in Thomas himself. We've been critical of Thomas uh, in our talk here, but there, even in the very first article of the Summa, 111, uh, Thomas is quoting, is quoting scripture in defense of his articulation. Uh, less so in the Summa Contra Gentilis, uh, where some argue that that is more of a true, natu- a true natural theology as opposed to one that uses revelation. But you almost get this sense, if, if Augustine became, we say, maybe more biblically oriented through his career, you might argue that on a less obvious scale, you see something similar to that in Aquinas. Here he is trying to, trying to begin from man's natural reason, and he's proving that he can do this uh, by appeal to the Scripture right. itself. He's justifying the whole right. endeavor by appeal to the Scripture. Yeah, that's why we need to say, uh, even though we may be critical of Thomas, he's still someone that ought to be read with discernment. Sometimes his intuitions are better yeah. than he than he formally presents himself <laughs> he, uh, a, methodologically. Uh, we, we need to understand we stand on the shoulders of giants, yes. and this man is is a giant seven hundred years removed from us, you know, uh, at least. And um, right. and and so the things he were, was dealing with amidst his context are just phenomenal. So we want to be careful. Yeah, we want we want to say okay, we disagree with him at this point, but that is not to throw him out the baby out with the bathwater. And that would be true of other... So has philosophy, has secular philosophy, uh, af- after the rise of Christianity as a kind of dominant power in the West, uh, it seems that, that it's not uh, so offensive to philosophy in the university, because uh, Thomas was teaching at the University of Paris, uh, to, bring in theolo- to bring in theology and revelation right up front. At what point then does does uh, philosophy become more obviously hostile again? Because there does seem oh, to be the a... the Enlightenment, probably, right? right? The Enlightenment yeah. where you, you have uh, the, the um, human reason becomes a standard for determining not only is human reason uh, the, the means whereby we come to a, an awareness of the truth... But it is also now the standard or the measure by which we determine whether something even is true. Uh, or not that's not the best way to put it. Let me rephrase that. Because the that God made us to use our reason to be able to ascertain whether something is true. But in the Enlightenment, human reason becomes the limit of what is true. And and the other night when I spoke at the University of Delaware, I made a reference to Sir Arthur Eddington, the, that uh, wonderful British uh, academic who made the comment that what my net can't catch ain't fish. Okay, And what that means is if, if the human mind can't make sense of something, we simply deny its existence. Or we is, ignore it. I mean, that's uh, that's more popularly seen in in the New Atheism, Richard yes, Dawkins. Exactly. Exactly. So, but that mindset, of course, that mindset's in the Garden of Eden, right? Okay. So this is the, we we want to be careful that while we trace some things to the Enlightenment, what we mean is that historically, a, a sinful attitude that's been around since the fall comes to greater expression, more obvious expression. Uh, in the thinking of Enlightenment philosophers, uh, you know, Immanuel Kant is the, our favorite uh, whipping boy, uh, but he's the one that said, dare to overthrow external authorities. Uh, super aude in the Latin, dare to 
overcome or to conquer or to throw off our self-incurred tutelage to external authorities, the Bible and the church being the, the two main external authorities. And, and return to the authority of sinful Adam and Eve. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's not how he put it, but that's but really that's how what we would was, interpret right? Kant. Human, yeah. human the, 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 the authority... Allah, Adam and Eve. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there, there's, there's the problem. That's the problem with philosophy done without reference to uh, the Bible. However, uh, because we are made, in, even as sinners, we are made in God's image, live in God's world, and are exposed to natural revelation as well as special revelation, there are times where even unbelievers or sinners get things right. And that's why, as Christians, we can't ignore. Uh, when I say as Christians, I don't mean every last Christian, but Christians as a group, the church, if you will, can't ignore uh, philosophy. We need to be aware of it, be familiar with it, uh, not only to counteract it where it's wrong, but also to benefit from its insights where it may be right. Mm. Uh, so that's why in, at the beginning we were talking about the three approaches to to the relationship of philosophy to theology, I would tend to see myself as falling in the school of Augustine, uh, who saw philosophy as the handmaiden of theology, in the sense that uh, philosophy often offers uh, clarity to theological discussions, or it can offer clarity. At least that's that's my sense of things. In, in offering clarity, I think sometimes the response might be, but but didn't didn't philosophy muddy the waters to begin with? It, isn't it isn't it simply a, a, a way devised to answer the questions that it raised? That that I mean, let's let's face it. Most most people who are never told about uh, Plato's ideas or or universals um, and and Aristotle's critique of Plato have never have never worried their heads about. Uh, the status of universals, well, and especially right. as relative to God. Uh, they do not on a theoretical level, but I would argue that they do on a practical level. But let's, let's go back to, to discuss some of these things that you brought up here. Let's see. And it just went right out of my mind. I love that. I'm trying to hold all this together in, in my head. Uh, philosophy... Uh, we should we should discuss just briefly what this philosophy discusses. Okay, we've already said it's etymologically the love of wisdom. There are three branches historically of philosophy: metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Right? Okay. Wow, those are three things that Van Til deals with. Well, <laughs> okay, metaphysics is the study of of that which is beyond the physical. That's a really ba- basic. Meta the study of being existence things as things things, things as, as they things. exist right and then epistemology is the study of human knowledge how do we know what we know mm-hmm. what's yeah. our justification yeah, what's justifi- our basis for right. it etc what, what makes knowledge knowledge uh-huh. as opposed to opinion uh-huh. or which is belief. probably the hottest topic in philosophy yeah. justified true belief justified mm-hmm. true belief Opin- knowledge you're right. is justified you're right. true belief 90% of philosophy today is discuss- or more is discussing epistemology, epistemology. Yeah, and then there's a ethics, which is the study of human behavior, and morality. Uh, now, as a van, we can say this. Um, all right, so that's what philosophy historically has dealt with, and you should see right away that when you uh, understand philosophy and its three departments, that those are also theological. 
So uh, they overlap. The concerns of the philosopher overlap with the concerns of the theologian. Well, for the, for the Christian who, who sees that, we, uh, we certainly have particular answers to those types of questions. I mean, God has told us how we were to think of how things exist. Where did they oh. come from? And when we give the biblical answer, are we giving a philosophically satisfactory answer? Hmm. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And that may, that's, well... That's Depends on who needs crumbled. to be satisfied. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Ultimately, <laughs> yeah. that would be the difference there, between the... That's where the apologetical the, aspect of it. By what standard is someone satisfied? As opposed to a Christian theologian or Christian philosopher ought to be concerned with pleasing God, satisfying God, being conformed to his word. I think of Lane Tipton's uh, article that in, yes. in rejecting all the vain philosophies that exalt themselves against God and against his anointed, that in... In rejecting all those things, we do we do uh, counteract them with a philosophia Christos, kata Christon. These things, the philosophies that aren't according to Christ, implies that there is a philosophy that is according to Christ, which is the biblical articulation of things, Mm -hmm. uh, epistemological, metaphysical, and ethical. We'd say the only true and defensible articulation of things, as well. Because it's, the, because it's the only articulation of things that is derived from the mind of God, which is the only source of knowledge for how things really right. are. Exactly. See, this is where, why secular philosophy that wants to ignore God or un, you know, non-Christian religiously informed philosophy, and they're out there too, as we already mentioned, the Muslim, uh, there were forms of Islamic philosophy, Islamic Aristotelianism, right, in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, though, is that uh, philosophy must be, I would argue, subjected to, subject to the scriptures. Uh, and this, of course, gets into discussions that have been held within reform circles uh, regarding uh, the law of the cosmonomic idea or, or uh, Dewey Verdianism. And, and my, one of my criticisms of Dewey Verdianism, which is going back to Hermann Dewey Verd, a reformed Dutch philosopher mm-hmm. uh, from about the time of World War II, prior to and, and after one of the that. four horsemen, Robert Newton would say. One of the four horsemen. Okay, well, he he argues what looks to me like uh, uh, the arguing that philosophy is to control all of the disciplines of scientific disciplines, academic disciplines, including theology, and I just reject that outright. There are other problems with that that viewpoint. Let me go on record as saying that. Those of you who disagree with me, feel free to. You can contact us at reformforum.org. And send $2 when you contact us. That's right. Um, Now, there are, are, of course, You have to pay to to have your gripe heard. (laughs) And again, that's not to to dismiss Doe Verd altogether, although I'm pretty close to doing that. But... uh, (laughs) You know, we we believe that God is incomprehensible. Well, the next best thing is Herman Doivert and his disciples, but we'll leave that alone. I was reading the new critique of theoretical thought the other day. And and you, uh, I, I called you the other day and you were crying. Is that yeah, why? No, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it was right then that I put the book back on the shelf. <laughs> it's it's um, the interesting thing, and, and this is kind of getting off on another topic, but Doivert on other in other uh, shorter essays... Uh, is crystal clear. So I don't know what's going on with with, with that, the new critique of theoretical thought. But anyways, mm. there's an example 
Uh, that's just a, moder- a more contemporary example of what I believe is where philosophy doesn't become subject to Scripture. And part of the reason for that is that his doctrine of Scripture is askew. Mm-hmm. So you see, when you hear us saying that that um, philosophy must be subservient to exegesis and theology, well, that's assuming yes. that it's orthodox theology yeah, I've been and listening orthodox to exegesis some... of the scriptures, right? Because uh, in the case of, in Doeyvert's case, I'm of the opinion that the doctrine of scripture is askew. Now, which is first, the uh, 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 skewed understanding of philosophy or a skewed doctrine of scripture? I don't know him well enough, and, I'm not ch- I, and I would dare be nasty enough to challenge someone to demonstrate which comes first. It's yeah. a chicken and egg problem in that well, you could look at someone for like Carl Bart for instance or I've been studying Carl Rahner and and you look at wh- which comes first the philosophy or your doctrine of scripture and and clearly you can see philosophical impacts upon the doctrine of scripture and therefore even if you're taking your philosophy from scripture or attempting to do philosophy kata Christon, it's going to be misguided if you've if you've if you've espoused uh, an anti-Christian approach already at the beginning, yeah. See, that's why uh, you know someone like Karl Barth, who argued for a theology that was not dependent upon philosophy, that was a big part of his project. And yet, the man bought into the Kantian it, it, philosophy it, or neo-Kantian Marburg neo-Kantianism of his day. I mean, for I mean, it's obvious right there. His Geschichte history distinction is, is looks to me like the 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 dimensionalism of Kant. I think what's interesting is he opposes uh, two very different schools of thought in the history of the church. He opposes uh, Schleiermacher's yeah. uh, you know that theology is gefühl, it's feeling. Uh, but he also opposes the speculative tradition of the church and the medievals. And yet, when you read when you read Bart, uh, the only way that you the only way that you know Christ really is not in Scripture, but is by a sort of Bardian gefühl. Uh, right. You have you have a, a mystical all, you, encounter. You have a kind of repristination of Schleiermacher into Bart, even though he's uh, quite opposed. And you also have. Uh, speculation at times at its height, and so for all of his criticism of of the mystical tradition and the speculative tradition, uh, he he really uh, is a recapitulation of both. Interesting. So back to uh, the at the end of the day, I think we have to say that the relationship of philosophy to theology and biblical exegesis is complex. Uh, where uh, it's it is, I mean, it, it's. Where it's complex in our day, we thought we would demonstrate that before we yeah, said it. That's, that's right. That's just and the self-evident did, uh, conclusion. Right? Uh, and where it's a pedagogical thing we're doing. And understand here. that biblical <laughs> biblical studies are not exempt from this issue. Okay. Uh, on Tuesday night, when I gave my talk, uh, I the last third of my presentation was on the philosophical. A background of much of the New Testament criticism in the 19th, 18th and 19th uh, and 20th century. Uh, and you see there that the tr- handling of the Bible, the New Testament in, that, in this case, uh, was often influenced by a particular philosophical school. And of course, the favorite go-to guy is Ferdinand Christian Bauer, uh, whose handling of the Book of Acts was such an obvious Hegelian philosophical move at least to me, uh, that it's um, almost 
too obvious. Are you you're familiar with uh, Bauer's handling of the Book of Acts? No. Uh, in the uh, now you know that the Hegel's philosophy of the spirit working itself out in history through dialectic to ever process. greater awareness of itself right. uh, is the thesis, antithesis, Result. synthesis. Right? right. Now he saw that there were there was one party in in the ancient church called the Petrine party or the Jewish party. Then there was the Pauline party or the Hellenistic party, and those two were at war with each other. Yeah. And eventually they reached a synthesis in early Catholicism. Mm. That was the paradigm, or that was the, the, the pattern that he interpreted the book of Acts through. So he had, he had to trash the book of Acts in terms of historical accuracy uh, because he came to it with a rejection of the historical accuracy before mm. he even looks at the detail. Mm-hmm. He's already committed to a Hegelian philosophy. Yep. Now that that's a simplistic uh, treatment of the topic, but I think it's uh, accurate as far as it goes. It just goes to show that we do have pre- fundamental presuppositions as we approach the study of anything, right. and but, those end up guiding uh, and, right. and and shaping the conclusions that we will come to. But in our in our day, I think where philosophy uh, is more obviously at work is probably in the, in in hermeneutics. In the inter- science of the interpretation of a text, in in our case, biblical hermeneutics, uh, philosophies uh, are at work uh, affecting how the Bible is interpreted. Uh, give you one example: uh, Hans Frey uh, wrote a book called *The Eclipse: A Biblical Narrative*, which is actually quite a good book in its own right. But Frey was a more or less neo-orthodox guy and so his understanding of biblical interpretation will be colored by the philosophical background of neo-orthodoxy which of course we would trace among other things to Immanuel Kant and others but so that the uh, the treatment of the bible therefore is being affected by secular philosophical uh, notions now what the problem though is very often uh, folk don't realize that or at least don't admit it. The hermeneutical spiral, uh, properly understood, is that we come to the Bible with presuppositions that will need to be corrected. And the uh, Lord willing, as a, as a believer, and the Holy Spirit is working with you in your reading of God's Word, those presuppositions will be corrected and, and will be, you will develop biblical presuppositions. I mean, that's what the hermeneutical spiral is. You read, reread, read, and reread, and as you're doing that, your your view of Scripture and of reality of God and the world, salvation, these things will be corrected. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, what we're talking about with Augustine, right? We might even the say that's what... The relationship of Neoplatonic philosophy to, to, to biblical uh, teaching is that over time, as he was reading his the, the Bible... It, the, the a biblical understanding of reality of God and, and sin and salvation began to displace the more Neoplatonic view of things. We could say that'd be the Romans one or twelve one and two pattern that being transformed and uh, by the renewing of, by our, the renewing minds, of our minds, right? Not mm-hmm. being conformed to the pattern of this world. Mm-hmm. Right? The response of that in Augustine is is not um, that he completely 
dumps the world of, of philosophical Not ideas and discourse uh, as as something unnecessary now that he has right. a scriptural a more scriptural outlook but it is to say he can come back to those terms and he can force them into better servitude to the doctrine of scripture uh, than he could have before i think of the church's use of even many words that you don't find in scripture but but even uh even your your normal Christian in the pew, week in and week out, will affirm certain language that arises out of philosophy. And I think of it, especially in terms of things like essence. We talk about we talk about God's essence, uh, not something you find in Scripture. We talk about we talk about persons, um, natures. Uh, we don't. These aren't these are concepts that are taken over and, and forced now, into. Why I'm not bothered by that reality is is, is I can give an illustration of this. Well, you know, the fact that the early church uses philosophical terminology uh, to help it better articulate uh, the, the Christian faith in its context, uh, if you're bothered by that uh, idea, let me give you an analogy. When God reveals himself to the Old, Test- to Old Testament Israel, and that, that revelation is inscripturated, and he reveals himself in the New Testament, uh, through the Incarnation and then through the, the books of the New Testament, he does not invent a new language out of nowhere, de novo. He uses Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The term theos in the New Testament was a term originally applicable to, um, to uh, yes, right, who was the, 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 the head god in the pantheon Zeus Zeus, Zeus thank you uh, I hate to when it comes to that in my mind Jupiter that's applicable to Zeus uh, is it Jupiter and, and the Roman the, equivalent the terms uh, and, and you may remember this uh, Camden uh, were you in my you were in my atonement class right yeah and we looked at five words that the New Testament yeah. uses like redemption propitiation yeah. and so reconciliation, forth reconciliation right. okay all of none of those We've terms done on were this program, invented too. none of those terms were invented in the New Testament they existed prior to and may have had and did, in fact, have pagan associations. Mm-hmm. And, and Philo's using be, logos right. uh, prior exactly. to John. Right. right. The right. John's use of the word logos, which I believe is strategic, if not accidental. Okay? Right. Because he knows that he'll get a hearing. People will, people will need to, to have their view corrected, but the, he, there, there's a... a Point of connection, if you will, right? Point of contact. Jesus does the same thing with the the concept of Messiah. He doesn't reject the, the idea; he corrects it. Mm-hmm. And so we see. Uh, I mean, and this, of course, relates to hermeneutics of the Bible. It relates to translation policy. In other words, you can't. Uh, God Himself, when He revealed Himself, took up terms and and, and phrases and, and and expressions that were that had pagan associations, and He baptized them and corrected them. Uh, Scott Oliphant in his book, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, I think would refer to something like this as twisted truth. Mm. What we do is we find that the elements of truth in unbelieving thought, or language in this case, and straighten them out. And really, in a sense, that's the whole history of the relationship, uh, a proper relationship of philosophy to theology, is that theology is is able to take concepts uh, ideas, terminology from philosophy, and untwist them and use them for the glory of God. And, and uh, Augustine talked about uh, 
plundering or spoiling the Egyptians. And now he's, he's yes. making reference back to when the children of Israel left Egypt. Uh, God worked it out so that the people, the Egyptians, were willing to give the children of Israel all you know precious gold and, and possessions. So, and, and of course, we believe that's how they were able to build the tabernacle later on, is that they had been given all this wealth. Okay, that comes from a pagan source, and then they use it to build the tabernacle. Yeah. Okay, later on in the wilderness, after they've crossed through the Red Sea, uh, and and Augustine sees that historical reality and says, okay, there's a principle that we can learn, which is to that there is truth sometimes that that pagans embrace because they're made in God's image, live in God's world, and are exposed to natural revelation. And so what we do as Christians is we baptize or <laughs> we take something that's true that's in a wrong context and we translate it into a biblical context. And you give an illustration of this is in Acts 17 when Paul is addressing the philosophers yes. on Mars Hill. He quotes poets. Eratus and Epictetus, if I remember correctly, to a philosopher, Greek philosophers. He says, in him... We, we live, live and move and, move and, and have, have our being. being, and we are indeed his offspring. Uh -huh. Those are references to Zeus. Right. Okay. Uh, what Paul does, he says, okay, those are formally true, but inaccurately uh, referencing a non-existent God, right. Zeus. But they are true when applied to the true God. And so there's an example. Well, according to the whole system of theology. And you that's what Paul it. does is he... Right confronts the Areopagus with the Christian position. But anyway. but is in is elements of truth in their own philosophers. Correct. Yeah. You find the same thing I think in like Psalm sixty eight, where God is described as the one who who uh rides through the desert or rides on the clouds. Um and the and the picture is something taken directly from the worship of Baal. Right. Um and it's applied to Yahweh himself. The language and the imagery would have been familiar as pagan uh, to the Israelites living living in and among Canaanites, uh, but what he's saying is the the things ascribed to the power of Baal will not uh, help the wicked in the day of judgment. They will be blown away as smoke. They will melt like wax before God because the one who really has power over these things is not Baal, but it's God Himself. Um, and yet the imagery is taken yes, over. Yes, it is right. Right, and, and and I know that there are folk who may be bothered by that, but that's a fact. Uh, that's a fact of revelation, and I guess that that's an illustration of the point I was making. Uh, and the, you know, there are some movements that would look at the early church and how they drew upon Greek philosophy and say that uh, spoiled theology. Now, there are elements of truth to that. Uh, we might question some of the theologians' use of Greek philosophy, but I, I think a really good case can be made that when terms like substance or essence and person uh, and things of that nature were used in the discussions of the Trinity and the discussions of of the, the incarnation, the two natures of Christ. That those are uh, those terms, while they're taken from a pagan source, again they're they're twisted truths that are untwisted and used in a Christian setting, so that it's no Aristotle would would. Uh, or other Plato would not have recognized the the, the use the usage of the terms within within a, a Christian context. Now, if I can use another illustration uh, that that uh, we would all question, but so would Aristotle, the use of Aristotle's substance accidents distinction uh, 
with regard to transubstantiation of the Lord's Supper. The, the, the bread and the wine become the body, literally become the body and blood of Christ. I don't think Aristotle would have known what to do with the idea that the substance changes, but the accidents right. remain the same. Because accidents always inhere in substance in an Aristotelian outlook. Right. So there's an example, and we would say a bad usage of Aristotle, but one that proves the point, right? That Aristotle would, would have gone, huh? I think I think on that count, Aristotle is more right than the Roman right. Catholic and tradition. It's interesting, <laughs> though, but it, it, it proves the point that when the concept is taken up into the Christian uh, in in Christian theology, it can be corrupted. It can be changed, but it can be corrupted. But it can also be corrected. Right. That's an example of a corruption. Mm-hmm. But it show, But what it shows is that the principle, the concept, does not stay the same. No. Right. In other words, when it when it's brought into the Christian context, it changes. Yeah. When it's when when you transfer those types of elements into any different system of thought, any other worldview, the 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 substance is going to by necessity have to change. I mean, another example, just maybe as we as we close out, be the Vantillian project. He oftentimes expressed the Christian uh, philosophy, the Christian system of thought, in basically British idealist right. categories. Right. And he thought he had warrant for that because of the way John wrote uh, and how John used the Lagos principle to explain Jesus and what he had done. Vantill wasn't trying to. Uh, take his cues from idealism, but what he did was speak into that language in order to demonstrate how Christian philosophy was not idealism and how it was the only, how the Christian philosophy is the only consistent one and where idealism fails. He had the misfortune, if you will, of of, of doing that at the time when idealism was passing out of fashion mm. within philosophical circles, right? I think that's at the rise of analytic philosophy, so that uh, idealism is a form of continental philosophy, right? British and, and continental, Kant, Hegel, those would all be considered idealistic Idealist. philosophers. Uh, so, but, but if you actually read Van Til on a level with more sophistication than uh, the De Boers and uh, Orlebeck. The, Cal- the Calvin Forum. Yes, all those group. guys. Um, you would understand that Van Til is using uh, idealistic language, but that the that the content of his terminology is vastly Absolutely. different and is, in fact, Christian. And he's very upfront about it, too, saying, yes. I do not mean what these guys mean. Right. But in order for, for apologetic reasons, he's using that language. And, and I would argue that there there's uh, work to be done there for apologists to speak into the language of other philosophies, right. in other words, but to do the, it appropriately. The, 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 the problem, and this is something we always face, is that to, to merely stop where Van Til did, in other words, can we look at his concepts, like the concrete universal, and say, okay, how can that be expressed in an in, in uh, understandable way in sure. our day, while upholding the point that, that using the idealistic language was making? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean that that's where we have work cut out for us. We do, and I think Dr. Poitras has done some work on that yeah. in the area of speech act theory. Yeah, which is helpful. Then a Vantillian critique of speech act using their own tools against them. And Dr. Poit or Dr. Oliphant as well. Yeah, in, in the area, area of analytical philosophy, right? Right. I, I mean, would I would like to see some work in uh, 
Derridian philosophy, uh, using some of the language and concepts of deconstructionism, postmodern, yeah, postmodern thought. You could, we could, we could talk all day about different unbelieving philosophies that need to be challenged on their own terms, and uh, that's an area for all those out there who are interested we'll, we'll in that type of thing. That for another day. We will. Well, this has been a great discussion, a long one at that, but it's been fun. We hope we've provided some response, uh, some appropriate relationship between philosophy and theology. You can visit our website at reformedforum.org. There you can find a contact page to send us emails. You can also find past programs and also links to books and all sorts of other fun stuff. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope that you listen again to Christ the Center. <laughs>